Let's pray. Father God, uh, that we come to this time in our service where we, we try to open up our hearts and our minds to listen to you, to hear from your word. And uh, that is what we ask now, God, speak to us and teach us and uh, convict and encourage all the things that your spirit can do and does do through your word. Um, help us when we study together, Father, to uh, put distractions aside as best we can. And uh, we give this time to you now. Please speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to start with a question. Uh, you don't need to raise your hand or anything, but uh, you can just answer it to yourself. How many of you, I wonder, at one time or another found it difficult to believe in God? Just maybe uh, you had questions of some kind, intellectual questions, historical questions, academic kinds of questions, or maybe your experience in life at a particular point in time was such that the idea of a good and loving God just somehow seemed to be at odds with your reality. Or maybe the prayers that you were praying just seemed to be going unanswered. Uh, or when you thought that you needed God most, it seemed to you like he wasn't showing up, not the way you thought you needed him. Uh, many people, for many different reasons, wrestle with a very serious problem of doubt when it comes to spiritual things, in particular when it comes to God. We've been in a series called Life Plus People Equals Problems. It's a very uplifting series. <laughs> and uh, we've been looking at some pretty difficult topics. I mean, we, we talked about suffering of various kinds that people go through. We talked about loneliness. We talked about divorce and relational pain and how do we look at that and how do you get through that. And I've got to tell you, I'm very grateful to be a part of a church where we can talk openly and honestly about these kinds of things. We don't ever want to give the impression that just because you go to a church or just because you have faith in Jesus and you try to follow him, that life is la-di-da, you know, because of that. Simply not true. Uh, and I'm glad to be a part of a church where we can acknowledge that and dive in to talk about difficult subjects. But I do have to, if I'm being honest, I have to uh, kind of go back to that question, the question, God, why do we even have to talk about any of this stuff, right? I mean, why do people experience all this brokenness and all this difficulty and Problems after problem after problem. Uh, isn't that part of why it can be challenging sometimes to believe in God? And let me just say at the outset that if that's you, if you find yourself, even in this, the Christmas holiday season as we kick it off, experiencing doubt or wrestling with disappointment, things that uh, make believing in God a little bit difficult for you, then let me say to you, you are in the right place. You know, sometimes in churches we like to give off the air that we are very certain about very many things, right? Never been in a church environment where that's kind of the spirit of things. But ironically, I would say this. I would say the Bible is a book especially for doubters. It really is. Some of you know about doubting Thomas, right? You heard that expression. Well, it comes right out of Scripture. Some of you uh, know a little bit of his story. Uh, doubting Thomas had these doubts about Jesus. He was one of the 12 apostles. Now, after some of the apostles were saying, Jesus has risen from the grave, uh, here's doubting Thomas. He said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it, he said. He's not buying anybody's story about resurrections, right? 
Now, later on, Jesus appears to the disciples, and Thomas happens to be there, and, and Jesus comes over and personally invites Thomas to check him out. This is what Jesus says. Put your finger here, he says. <laughs> See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side, showing him, obviously, the scar from that wound. And then he says, stop doubting and believe Stop doubting and believe, Thomas. And then Thomas does believe. In fact, he utters something that's pretty remarkable. He says, my Lord and my God. And something changes for Thomas that day. Something very significant. Now, interestingly, Thomas isn't the only doubter among the, the disciples. Many days later, after quite a few appearances of Jesus to various sized crowds, this is what we read. It says, then the 11 disciples, the, those of the original 12 apostles, uh, went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, which is what you would expect. Yeah, obviously they worshiped him. But then we read, but some doubted. Wow. Wow. They had seen him with their own eyes. They had talked to him in person. They had eaten with him. They'd been listening to him teach. And they still had doubts. About what? About what? About maybe Jesus' mission that he was calling them to? Some speculate there's, the doubts here had to do with the fact that were they really looking at an embodied, resurrected Jesus, you know, with a real body? Or were they looking at just a ghost, a spirit? We don't know exactly what their doubts were about, but they had them. Now understand, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Let me explain. You know, we get into this kind of binary thinking and we say, you either have faith or you have doubt. You either believe or you don't. Well, not exactly, not according to the Bible. Uh, in this fallen world that we live in, the fact of the matter is doubt oftentimes accompanies faith. In other words, even with faith, we have questions. Uh, faith doesn't necessarily always produce certainty. Uh, there's a great uh, command in the New Testament letter of Jude, this little tiny book in the New Testament. Jude is the brother of James, we're told. James is the brother of Jesus. So what does that make Jude? He's the brother of Jesus. Jude is actually the brother of Jesus. And Jude says this, uh, he says, be merciful to those who doubt. What an interesting thing for Jude to say. Uh, Jude had watched Jesus grow up his whole life long, being the brother of Jesus. And yet Jude and his other siblings had been doubters. In fact, even scoffers at one point in time. In Mark chapter 3, verse 21, at one point, uh, the family comes to Jesus. He's been teaching. We're not going to read this, but they actually think he's out of his mind. And they come to take control of him. They're scoffers. But now Jude is a believer. He believes his own brother is God. How weird is that? Any of you ever, ever thought that about a brother, a sister? Yeah, no, yeah. Jude had come to that conviction that this brother of his that he had grown up with and watched in public ministry and at one time thought was out of his mind, this brother Jesus is God. And Jude writes and he says, be merciful to those who doubt. And he says that, I think, because Jesus, God, had been very merciful to him. And here's the point. God knows that we have doubts. God knows that we have questions. And God is very merciful 
very merciful toward doubters. Now, how do we know this? Well, number one, Jesus, what I just shared with you. But also we see this throughout scripture. Uh, You know, the Bible is a book for doubters. Uh, One example in the Old Testament, there's this short little book called Lamentations. It's a very happy book. Uh, It's just five chapters long. And I'll bet some of you have never even read it, but it's a book that's filled with questions. It's filled with doubt. It's, It's filled with all kinds and levels of disappointment. And this is really important because we need to know that we have permission to engage God with these kinds of things, with our disappointment, with our questions. This is actually a book that has been used for centuries in the Jewish faith to express pain or to express loss or to express grief or to express doubt. And uh, we aren't certain who wrote this book. Uh, The book doesn't tell us who its author was. Many feel it was Jeremiah for good reason. Uh, It very likely was Jeremiah. Uh, But we don't know for sure who the author was. What we do know for sure is that in the year 587, we understand the context so we know why the book was written. In the year 587, about 600 years before Jesus showed up, there was an arrogant, powerful, young pagan king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who had come from Babylon to invade Judah. And he systematically dismantled and destroyed Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. Jerusalem had been invaded before. That was not new. But nothing like this had ever taken place before. Houses burned to the ground. Walls torn down. Lives destroyed. Men, women, and children butchered. God's temple totally destroyed. Burned to the ground. That was Solomon's temple. The temple, you understand, was the the place that symbolized the very presence of God with his people. It symbolized God's covenant. It reminded them of all the promises God had made to them. Without the temple, you understand, there there were no daily sacrifices, no priesthood, uh, no daily prayers being offered at the temple, no daily worship. Israel was just like all the other nations without this temple. The temple was their symbol. It was their sign. It was the evidence of God's presence, and now it is gone. Imagine, if you can, uh, that everything that reminds you of God, whatever it is that reminds you of God, churches or worship or reading your Bibles, things that near, everything that reminded them of God, his promises, his forgiveness, his provision, his splendor, his majesty, his presence, all of that is gone. And that was Israel's situation in that day at that time. And in response, Jeremiah, or one of the survivors of this great tragedy, penned this little book, this lament, Lamentations. It's a book written by people who have problems for people who have problems. That's what it's about. And if you've got a Bible, you can turn there with me uh, to Lamentations chapter 1. You can look it up in the index if you need to find it. Or you can uh, look at some of these scriptures that will be on the screen. You know what's interesting? I just read a little article that talked about Bibles under glass. That's what you hold in your hand if you've got a smartphone and you're reading. You know, it's a Bible under glass. And it talked about how it, this has always been a problem. It's not a new problem. But it's actually getting worse in our day. And that is that people can't find anything in the Bible. And one of the reasons they attribute that to is that they're reading their Bibles off their smartphones. And, you know, it is kind of harder to mark things and then get back to, you ever read a book in Kindle and, oh, what page are you on? I have no idea, right? 
Well, so I would encourage you, if you can, if you've got a Bible, bring it and, and use it as a tool and get familiar with it. And, and uh, just uh, that way you have a hard copy, not because it makes you more spiritual, um, but just because it, it might better serve you in terms of your own spiritual growth. But anyway, that's a, that's a different sermon. That might be next week's sermon. Uh, Lamentations chapter one. This is what we read. This is how the book starts. How deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow she is, who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are upon her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is none to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Now, you know, we could keep reading. The tone doesn't change. It goes on and on and on like this verse after verse after verse. Uh, And notice, too, there's no nice theological uh, opening, no kind words for God, no reference to his promises, to his goodness. Sometimes, you know, if you've uh, read scriptures like the Psalms, uh, it kind of will often open with, you know, God is great, God is good sort of a subject, and we're going to follow him. And then it will get into questions or doubts or concerns some verses later. And then oftentimes it will come back to that declaration about how good and how great God is, but not here. Not in this book. Here it begins with this incredibly dark description of loss. A crowded city, now empty. A once a very powerful nation, now a lonely widow. Once a queen, now a slave. That's the picture here. And alongside this description of loss, there is this, this expression of isolation. There's no one to comfort her, it says. And that little phrase actually occurs five times in the first two chapters of this book. There's no one to comfort her. Have you ever noticed, too, that when you find yourself in the midst of pain, it feels isolating? You ever notice that? Um, When you're going through something that's very, very difficult, it feels, I'm not saying it always is like this, but it certainly feels like no one around you gets it. You ever felt that? No one understands your situation. Nobody quite gets the difficulty, the degree of difficulty you're going through. In those moments, we do often feel alone. Now, the real question at the opening of this book is, God, how can this happen? Uh, In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, this book is called Ekah, which is the Hebrew word for how. That's the first word in this book, how. And this word appears again in chapter 2 and again in the very beginning of chapter 4. How? How, Lord? How did you let this happen? How do we go through this, God? God, you could have stopped this, but you didn't. How could this happen? You ever said anything like that? You ever asked a question like that? Anybody? Yeah. I have. God, you could have saved this marriage, but you didn't. God, you could have prevented this loss. God, I I know you have the power and the ability, but for some reason, you didn't show up. You didn't work. Not the way I asked. God, I have been praying this prayer forever. I know that you can answer prayer, but for some reason, you haven't answered this one. How can this happen? See, Israel was facing that very question, that same question. And uh, what's interesting in this book is that the writer spends time talking about two ways to respond to this question. Uh, The first way is, frankly, hard to hear. Uh, It's very convicting. 
Uh, he says this, he says, the calamity that Israel had experienced was a self-inflicted wound. That's the first way to respond to difficulty. You see, in other words, it, it, the, the writer says that what they were experiencing was a result of their actions, their choices, their decisions, despite many warnings over a long period of time. For example, Lamentations 1.8 says this, Jerusalem has sinned greatly and so has become unclean. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. In other words, they've seen to the very heart of who she is. And even she herself groans and turns away as if looking in a mirror. That's the point. Israel is having to take a long, hard look in the mirror. The fact is, for hundreds of years prior to this cataclysmic moment in their history, Israel had fallen into more and more and more sin and idolatry. And the nation that was supposed to be known for honoring God and for loving their neighbor and caring for the poor and doing justice and teaching and standing for the truth had become known really for its economic oppression. The rich were getting richer, the poor were getting poorer. Judicial corruption, political factions, and idolatry, the pursuit of other gods. Israel had become intensely corrupt. And part of what they were experiencing was simply the consequences of their own actions. You see, God's covenant, God's agreement with Israel, his many promises to Israel to love them, to be with them, to bless them, also presupposed that they would love and worship God, that they would, in other words, have a relationship with God. They would listen to him. They would obey him. They would walk with him. And this is no different today. I mean, the Apostle Paul, in writing one time to the church of Galatia, uh, he wrote them these words. He, was, he had been talking about the grace of God and, and God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. But he also says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. That was Paul's warning, Paul's reminder. And then the Apostle John, in a little letter that he writes, 1 John, he says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. And this was true then, and of course, it's true today. We can't take God's love for granted or presume upon his grace. We don't say, oh, hey, God, you know, I've really messed this thing up. Yeah, I, I, uh, I've done this, I've done that. So I, I need you to get me out of this and make all the consequences go away. And if you do, I'll really appreciate it. And oh, yeah, and I won't doubt if you'll just step in and do what I want you to do. Sometimes the pain that we experience in life, you see, is the result of our own choices, our own decisions, our own actions, our own attitudes, which means that for some of us, when we read a text like this, you know, we, we need to pause. It's, it's like looking into the mirror. We need to stop blaming God or stop blaming someone else. Take a look, an honest look in the mirror, because maybe the reason for my difficulties, my, my loss of a job or my struggling marriage or my lack of friends or my poor relationship with my children, maybe the reason is me. Maybe it is. And we've got to understand it's not God's job to get me off the hook when I make a mess of something. You know, to kind of swoop into the rescue and make everything the way I want it to be again. The truth is, for some of us, our doubts about God may be our way of uh, avoiding uh, accountability for our own choices. Maybe you feel far from God. 
but you're hiding a sin or a habit that you just don't plan to give up or let anyone know about. Well, that's going to keep distance between you and God. Maybe you feel God is distant, but truth be told, you haven't been doing the things that would help you draw near to him. Because the promise is if you draw near to him, what will he do? He will draw near to you, you see. You see, part of answering the question, how come this happened, is taking a hard look in the mirror. As the writer of Lamentations said, Jerusalem has sinned greatly. There's a vulnerability to that, an accountability to be able to say, you know, I've, I've messed up. And I'm just saying that for some of us, the way to actually experience God, the way to know God and perhaps feel his presence in our lives starts with confession. It starts with repentance. It starts with that long look, honest look in the mirror. It starts with naming and admitting our own sin and then turning from it and saying, God, I need help. I need help to turn from this. And if we do this, we just might begin to experience God's love and grace in a very powerful, very new way. The writer spends a lot of time talking about this in Lamentations, confessing his sin, confessing the sins of Israel. And... um, And he's moving towards God. He's drawing near to God. But that's not the whole story of this book. Uh, That's one response to difficulties and problems and and tragedy. It's self-examination. It's repentance. It's confession. That's one response. But there's also another response. The writer of Lamentations goes on to talk about, a, I would say, an even more difficult response. Sometimes it's just true that our pain doesn't make any sense. Our circumstances, our difficulties just don't make any sense to us. Sometimes there's not a clear line of consequences. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes there's just no reason why this happened. And in cases like that, it's not confession that's needed for healing. It's actually complaint. Now that kind of strikes us as unusual that we would say that in a church. You see, the writer in Lamentations isn't just saying, God, we've messed up, forgive us. He does say that. But he says some other things as well. The writer also begins to complain to God, even accuse God. What what he's really doing is expressing exactly how he really feels. And he feels disappointed. And he feels let down. Listen to this. Uh, In Lamentations 3, the the writer says, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. And notice the writer here shifts to the first person. The writer is talking about his own experience. He's saying, I was there. I'm feeling this. I saw the affliction. I've experienced the pain. And implied in that is the question sort of, God, where were you, you see? Where were you when Jerusalem fell? Where were you when people were being killed in the streets? Where were you when we were starving because of the siege that went on month after month? Where were you when the temple was being burned? Where were you, God, when we prayed? And as uncomfortable as questions like that make us feel, and I hope That kind of makes you feel a little uncomfortable. The asking of these questions is very important because sometimes I think we imagine that faith means putting on kind of a happy face, being able to say about everything, oh, it's okay, it's all good. Or or that it means having to ignore or not talk about 
our real questions or our real pains or our real disappointments in our lives. That's not what faith is, friends. The writer of Lamentations uses some of the most graphic and accusatory language that we find in all of Scripture. Uh, Look at this one, a kind of a long passage. Again, Lamentations 3. He says, He, God, has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with change. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding. He dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without hope. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. Wow. You know, stop sugarcoating it. (laughs) Merry Christmas. Let's close in prayer. Some of you are wondering, what the heck is he talking about this for? Uh, We're starting into Christmas. There's a point. Just hang on. I'm going somewhere with this. How do you think God responds to this? I mean, you would think God would answer back, right? You would think God would defend himself. But here's the deal. You read the book. You check it out. God is silent. In fact, he doesn't say a word. No commentary. No interruptions. No coming to defend himself. He just lets the the writer of Lamentations kind of process all of this stuff going on in his life. You know, there's another book of the Bible that's kind of about difficulty and problems, and that would be the book of Job. Yeah, that's a very different book. Um, You know, Job complains and Job accuses and Job declares his own righteousness that he hasn't done anything wrong. Eventually, God shows up. God speaks loudly and clearly in that book. But here, at the lowest moment in all of Israel's history, God is silent. And the writer's left waiting and wondering and praying and processing in the dark. And I wonder, you know, have you ever been there? Just waiting, wondering. Prayers just seem to bounce back off the roof. You see, here's the deal. When hardships happen that we can't explain, we really only have two choices. We can turn to God and embrace him, or we can run from him. Those are the two options. There's really no middle ground here. You see, it's in moments like these when a loved one dies unexpectedly or is diagnosed with something awful or a child is born with some impediment, or a child is injured, or a job is lost, and you can just keep adding to that list. At moments like that, you know, I wish I had answers. I I wish I knew the reason. I wish God, you know, would have acted differently. But at some point in all of our lives, when stuff like that happens, you see, we, we hit that moment where Uh, there is no longer really any middle ground for us to stand on. I don't understand. I don't have answers to the why questions, but I have to choose. Either to trust him 
or not. You know, when I first became a follower of Jesus, this is going back just a few years, back to high school, um, faith for me, I, I still remember this. I, I was so overflowing with joy and excitement because I had heard about a God I really knew nothing about. I'm reading the Bible going, oh, this is what Easter is. And oh, that's what Christmas is supposed to be about. And I mean, I'm making all these discoveries and I feel this warm, joyous feeling of closely relating to God. And, and then as the years roll by, about 50 of them since then, the more life I experience, the more I realize that's not really what faith is about. Faith is not always having the answers. Faith is not necessarily being certain. Faith is not even necessarily feeling that warmth, that trust. And the Faith is the choice we make to walk with God when it feels like there's really no middle ground. See, here's the deal. The book of Lamentations begins with questions. And sadly, it also ends with questions. And I hate to disappoint you. We're going to walk out of here this morning with lots of our own questions still intact. And there's nothing I can say to make all those questions go away. But understand, too, that's not the final word. The sermon doesn't end here. Thank God. Yeah, yeah. Because you see, right smack dab in the middle of Lamentations... The writer reflects. It's as if he's asking, you know, where do I turn? To whom do I, to whom do I turn to, you see? And it's in that context that he writes these words, very different words. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. So he's right smack dab in the middle of his problems. They haven't gone away. He says, I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. That's the truth, God, of what's going on in my life. And yet, he says... This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. He's still alive. He's still kicking. For his compassions never fail. What is compassion? Well, it's concern for the misfortunes of others. That's what compassion is. And his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, he declares. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him, the one who seeks him, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. This is what he remembers right in the middle of his difficulties. And you see, that is walking with God even when it feels like there is no middle ground. You don't have answers, mostly just questions. But you wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord to see what the Lord will do. That's overcoming faith, friends. That's not just simple, warm, fuzzy feelings. That is a choice that one makes in the midst of doubt and in the midst of difficulty to remember God's goodness and God's faithfulness to you in the past. Maybe it doesn't feel like that in the moment. But it's looking back and remember his faith, remembering his faithfulness. Friends, you see, faith is not about forgetting the past. It's not about ignoring the pain. It's not acknowledging, uh, or, or it, faith is not about not acknowledging some difficulty. Faith is what we choose to call to mind and to believe and to act on when we're in the midst of situations we don't understand. It's a decision to say, the God who let this happen 
This thing that's going on in my life right now is the same God whose love will keep me from being consumed. It's a decision to say the God who has not yet answered my prayer is the same God whose compassions never fail. It's a decision to say the God who I cannot see in my circumstances at this particular moment promises new mercies to me tomorrow. You see, faith is choosing to believe when it feels like there's no reason sometimes to believe. Now, I said feels like. There's always reasons to believe. But sometimes we get so um, mired in our difficulties or in our struggles that it feels like there's no reason to believe. Choosing to trust, you see, when it feels like you can't, that's faith. And friends, we don't do this blindly. We don't do this naively. We do this because of what we know about Jesus and what we saw Jesus do. That's why we exercise this kind of faith. The writer of Lamentations didn't get to see what God would do 600 years later. But he knew that God's mercies were new every morning. You know, he didn't get to see the man who would truly see affliction. The writer of Lamentations didn't get to meet the carpenter from Nazareth. He didn't get to hear him teach or see him heal or watch him suffer. He didn't know that it would be Jesus who was truly surrounded by hardship. That it would be Jesus' cry for help that would, that would be shut out. Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, that prayer was not answered, not the way he asked. Jesus, he, he didn't realize it was Jesus who was made a laughing stock. It was Jesus who would be weighed down by the sins of others. It was Jesus uh, whose side would be pierced. It was Jesus who was put into a tomb to rot. The, the writer of Lamentations didn't know what God was up to or would be 600 years later. It's interesting that in Jesus' darkest hour, the faith of every one of his followers failed. But Jesus didn't. Every one of his followers were filled with doubt and despair. But in that very moment, God was working. And God showed up. God's love didn't fail. God's compassion didn't stop. God's faithfulness never faltered, not for a second. You see, God uh, was in what looked like in the ultimate defeat produced the ultimate victory out of that defeat. And this is just what God does. He's always done this. It's what he's still going to do. Which means if your life today is difficult, if problems seem to be your lot, if you have more questions than answers, you need to understand it's not the end. It just isn't. God is not done writing your story or mine. He's not done. His work is not yet finished. For all who have doubts, to all of us who have questions, for those who think that God is missing in action, or maybe even worse, sometimes we even think that God is the enemy. Not true. It's absolutely not true. Nothing could be further from the truth. Earlier in the service, we read the passage in Lamentations 3, right in the midst of all those complaints, all that confusion, all of those questions. And this is what the, the writer of Lamentations says, because of the Lord's great love. He was convinced of that love. He didn't understand why all this had happened exactly. But he knew that God had great love. And he says, because of that, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. God never quits caring about the misfortunes of others. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, he declares. And you see, we know. We know for certain Jesus has come. And Jesus has lived. And Jesus has loved. 
and Jesus has served and Jesus has died, but he came back from the dead. You see, ultimate victory out of what looked like ultimate defeat. That's the gospel that we believe. That's what we hold on to and hang on to. Jesus is coming back. Friends, our hope does not reside in the strength of our faith. Our hope is in the strength of God's faithfulness, you see, which scripture promises will never fail us. Not ever. Now, that's what we're promised here in this sacrament. I mean, that's the visual symbol that we've been given, this thing of the Lord's table. You know, we say many things about it. I mean, it's a table of hospitality. He invites you to dine with him. But as we do so, we're supposed to remember his body and remember his blood that was shed, body broken and blood shed for us. Well, that's remembering defeat. You understand that Satan thought he had won the battle here. Finally, he's dead. Finally, he's in the tomb. Woo! It's taken three years to put him there. The realms of evil thought they had won ultimate victory. (laughs) But it was their ultimate defeat. That's what God was up to. And sometimes in our difficulties and sometimes in what the things in our lives look like and feel like to us such defeat, actually God is is working, structuring, changing us, preparing us for greater, uh, greater faith and greater trust and greater works of goodness in the name of Jesus. All of that is illustrated right here. How, how can you say that, Dwayne? That's so stupid that you think that. No, it isn't. This proves that it happens right here, you see. You know, in the night that Jesus was with the disciples in the upper room, he invited them to partake of a meal that uh, would forever be reminding them of these things that we're talking about this morning. The the sufficiency of what Jesus did for us. It was so irrational that the Messiah would come, the King of Israel would come, and that he would achieve victory through defeat. Wow. Nobody saw that coming. In the upper room, Jesus with his disciples took bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember the victory, he's saying. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. The body and the blood. You know, we invite you to partake of this.